Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, we're exploring the Sanctuary City ballot proposition going before Tucson voters this fall. We'll talk with supporters and opponents, and we'll hear about the experience in Oregon, which has been a sanctuary state for decades. I'm not sure that even all these decades later, Oregon has that much clarity on exactly the outer limits and how this law works. In November, Tucson voters head to the polls to elect a new mayor and members of the city council. But it's not those races that are getting most of the attention. Voters will also be faced with the question of whether Tucson should be officially designated as a sanctuary city. Zyra Olivier, with the People's Defense Initiative, which wrote the ballot question, says the initiative is not as simple as it sounds. It's often stated as a sanctuary city initiative and that somehow by voting yes on this, what we're doing is making some declaration of sanctuary. Um, And there's a couple of things wrong with that. For one, none of that is written into our initiative. Our initiative is called Tucson Families Free and Together. Yes, we've taken the word uh, sanctuary and we ran with it um, because we knew it was going to be used regardless. Um, But important to know is that it isn't just some kind of statement or declaration. Sure, we will be making a very large and stern statement if we pass this, but what it actually is, is a long set of very specific guidelines with very clear goals. Sanctuary is what you make it in the United States because all sanctuary policies across the nation are very different. Tucson Sanctuary Initiative is specifically unique. Why? Because we are home of SB 1070. SB 1070 is still in the books. The worst part of SB 1070, the show me your papers part of SB 1070 is still in the books. So we had to write this initiative to go around the edges of SB 1070 and to almost and effectively make it unenforceable here in Tucson. So we have protections in there against pretextual stops. Pretextual stops for those of folks that are listening are say when a police officer pulls you over for something like window tinting to then ask you if you have drugs or weapons in the car uh, and then find something else, give uh, unwarranted searches and the like, uh, which if you speak to any public defender in, in Tucson will tell you it's one of the worst things that happens to community members. Uh, we get caught off guard and then we get into a cycle of debt and incarceration. Uh, we have protections in there for victims of domestic violence and sexual assault, including children, uh, which is a really big issue in the undocumented community. Uh, SB 1070 really put a very deep fear and steepened the deep mistrust of migrants, um, their mistrust in institutions, specifically public institutions, specifically police. Uh, I was undocumented in Tucson when I was a child, and this was decades before SB 1070 went into effect, and I had one golden rule, and the golden rule was you never call the police or talk to the police under any circumstances. So um, our initiative is uh, very thorough. What sanctuary actually is, it doesn't stop any kind of investigation. What it does is it takes civil immigration matters off the table when police are investigating or coming into first contact with community members. In talking with Chief Magnus, uh, Tucson Police Chief, he says, They don't do immigration enforcement. That's not their mission. He talks about wanting to have a good relationship with the entire community. So regardless of 
someone's status. If they're the victim of a crime, they feel comfortable reporting it so that Tucson police can try and stop the crime and get the bad actor off the street. But you still have a lot of concerns, it sounds like. That's correct. I know Chief Magnus. I've worked with him. Well, not worked with him, but I've we're in constant contact. I do believe that he does want to have a good relationship. I do believe that immigration policy is not in his top orders. I understand that. But SB 1070 is the law of the land. We know from the community, we know from having a rapid response network here in Tucson, I know from having undocumented friends and family members that they are afraid to call the police. And Chief Magnus can say it a hundred times over and he can put a hundred police officers on bikes in our neighborhoods and it will take a long time to undo the damage that has been done. Immigrant-friendly general orders, the time came and went as when that was enough. Uh, We have a federal administration at this point that's doing gruesome immigration enforcement, and we have really no end in sight. What we're saying with this bill is we're putting into writing and into law, into actual law, that we will not collaborate with the tentacles of this immigration enforcement, and that we're sending a message, a resounding message, not to Trump and not to the state legislature. We're sending a message to the undocumented community of Tucson, the opposite of the message that SB 1070 sent. Some of the community that is coming out um, in opposition to this, including the two major party mayoral candidates, have said, no, they don't want to do this because they're afraid of losing state money, that if we we Tucson pass a law that is in conflict with state law, that the legislature can withhold money. What's your response to that? Well, they are absolutely correct in that sense, except that they're applying this entire thing wrong. One, the state legislature can't just wave a wand and take away our money. <laughs> Under SB 1487, what, what, what needs to happen is Number one, the governing board of a city or county or town, that means the the mayor and the city council must themselves pass a law that is then found to be in direct conflict with the state or constitution of, of, of Arizona. And then after a legal battle, perhaps funds can be withheld. If you actually read SB 1487, it is completely silent on citizen-led initiatives. Now, why? Uh, Citizen-led initiatives are mandated and protected by the Arizona Constitution for the state legislature to pass any hyper-preemption bills like 1487 that in any way hinder our right to direct democracy, which was given to us by the the deep mistrust of the funders of Arizona um, in the government, um, they would have to do a constitutional amendment and they would need a hypermajority in both of the houses to get something like that passed. So what do you say to those who say your goals can be accomplished through other means than this initiative? I, I'd welcome the suggestions because no one hates running this campaign more than I do. <laughs> um, we've tried. Uh, we have tried, um, and we haven't really gotten anywhere. I mean, we've been mobilizing in the community for sanctuary city policies for years, and we're just ignored um, or joined. I mean, 
the, the city council would join our marches sometimes and in our anger and then that would be it um it's a photo op what what this campaign really is it's an exercise in direct democracy for our community it's an exercise in direct democracy that says we don't have to just constantly react we can create we can mobilize ourselves we can take a stand ourselves we don't have to wait and beg our elected officials to do so for us. All right, well, thanks for sitting down with us. Thank you. That was Zyra Olivier with the People's Defense Initiative, the group behind Tucson's Proposition 205. In recent weeks, two political action committees have formed in opposition to the Sanctuary City Initiative. Joseph Morgan is with one of the groups, Citizens for a Safe and Prosperous Tucson, he says there are plenty of reasons to oppose the initiative. The first thing for us is the entire way in which it came about was kind of like under cloak of darkness, if you will, because it's it's called uh, Tucson Families Free and Together. That's what was on the the uh, initiative, their, their title to it. Now, if you go in uh, to the definitions, you know how they give you a definition of what each prop entails. That's nowhere there. I'm thankful for that. Uh, but when people were signing that petition, which they almost got 19,000 signatures, I don't think a lot of people had any idea. Because, and when you hear Tucson families free and together, who, who would be opposed to such a thing? I mean, but that really doesn't do a service, uh, a public service, to letting us know what this is actually about. And so, so that's number one. But number two, it's really going to create uh, some serious issues in, in our view. Um, and this is why, again, if you look at some of the, the, the voices against, like uh, Mayor Rothschild, uh, the, the current uh, police chief, Magnus, uh, they've all written about this, and there's other business uh, people who have written about it uh, from an economic standpoint and then from a, a public safety. The biggest one for them, uh, a lot of these voices, is the public safety, which plays into the economy um, in, in that the specific language that's crafted in here, it puts some serious ties on, on the way that uh, federal law enforcement and local law enforcement can work with one another on anything. And the federal law enforcement agencies are going to have to sign an agreement that they can't do anything that might be completely focused on the immigration status of, of people. Um, and that's their job from a federal perspective, all right? And so, like, I'll give you an example. One of the things is, is they'll have to sign this agreement that says unless they have an actual warrant for someone, they can't make an arrest uh, for probable cause just based on the, the, the immigration status of somebody. But the federal agents are empowered to do that. And so if they don't sign an agreement that says they won't do that without a warrant, then the T TPT can't work with them. And so there's a there's a real fear, and this is uh, some, some things that have been spoken about by others, that the federal agents, they're obviously not going to sign such an agreement. They'll just refuse to work with TPD entirely. And therefore, if there's no uh, working with them, we won't have access to their federal databases, you know, uh, for sex crimes and all these other kind of things. That is automatically making our, our community un, uh, more unsafe. And then, of course, there's, there's some other issues with it re regards to that. Uh, and that regards the just the term sanctuary. Even if we were calling it the sanctuary initiative, what does sanctuary even imply? It implies different things to different people because there's no hard and fast definition, legal definition of what that term implies. City leaders who are opposing this uh, have brought up the potential loss of state dollars if this passes. Is that the economics you're talking about, or are you talking about economic hits larger than that or different than that? Uh, different than that. I would largely say, for, for my view, 
it's a point, but it's more of a political talking point in my view, because frankly, if you're a principled person, you shouldn't fear reprisals uh, to do the right thing, right? And we would all hope that we had political leaders who are doing the right thing for the, the, for the, for the right sake. I mean, that's just simply a political thing. Yes, they're, uh, it would, they would clearly be in violation of state law, and the state does have the power to withhold state-sharing funds, and they absolutely, I guarantee you, this is, this is coming, people of Tucson. But, I mean, come on, seriously, if your whole argument is, well, we're, we're going to lose money for doing the right thing, come on, that's not really a, a valid argument in my view, so that's not an argument we're making at Citizens for a Safe and Prosperous Tucson. Uh, but it is one of the arguments that's out there, and it will certainly have a fiscal impact. No, our, our economic thing uh, more comes from the fact that it is just an absolute statistical sociological fact that where you have high crime, you have less economic engagement. You have less reason for businesses to come in. If you are seen as a high crime community, guess what? You're seen as a, a business not friendly community. Businesses aren't going to just be moving in. Oh, look at that. Their, their rape uh, uh, statistics are going through the roof. We ought to we ought to move into that community. No, that's not the way it works. It actually works the opposite. Um, and so uh, Tucson is already suffering from a, a stigma of being anti-business. Uh, they have been they've been suffering for that for for several decades. And now you have uh, the problem of, of high crime in certain pockets of this community as well. Well, you add this this stigma uh, to it, uh, yeah, you're you're not you're not going to be. Uh, it's not emblazoning a, a a billboard that says, "Hey, we're open for business." You're going to keep businesses from even being more uh, likely to stay out uh, as a result of that, and and that's our fear. We're talking with Joseph Morgan. He's with Citizens for a Safe and Prosperous Tucson. What's the data? Where's the data come from that says sanctuary equals higher crime? Well, again, that's a much more complicated thing because like I told you the the term itself. Um, has not been defined legally for sure, and everybody misapplies it. Um, studies that are being quoted that support it are supporting s sanctuary areas that literally are in lockstep with helping ICE detain the criminal element. So to sit there and say that that we have um, all these this data that points in one uh, way or another, we just don't. That's why I keep bringing up the, the Montgomery, uh, Maryland issue, because that is, and it could be anecdotal, I'm not sitting here saying it's not, but it is something that's there. In Montgomery County, what they're meaning is we are not going to help ICE at all. We're not going to uh, work with them in any way, shape, matter, or form. Uh, just like any citizen, once you're arrested for a crime, after 48 hours, we'll release you. You have your court date, so on and so forth, depending on the severity of the crime, obviously. But uh, there's a bond set, so on and so forth, and you're, you're released. Whereas if it's a, somebody who's in this country illegally, ICE has the power to detain them indefinitely. And so they ask for these retainers. They're saying no, even though these are rapists. These are people who have committed crimes. And in many of those cases of those stories in Montgomery County, these are, these are minors that have been uh, being uh, raped and violated, not just adults. These are children. So it's... It, it's clearly unsafe there. But like I said, this is a, a very hard data point to actually point to and say, uh, yeah, it's always bad there. It's always bad there because, again, of the terminology. And if you read the, the, the wording of this, it clearly says uh, what, what the, the TPD will not be able to do. And it is going to make it really hard to work with. So you can just imagine that's going to create barriers to legitimate law enforcement, uh, which how can that possibly be a good thing for our community on, a, on the security standpoint? With regards to the terminology, yes, I'm willing to concede that we have lots of, of different meanings here and there. But we do have plenty of evidence where when it's actually being applied the way that it's meant to, it's bad. Whereas nobody can tell me a single community that is legitimately following what they want 
it's 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 turned into a good thing. All right. Well, thanks so much for sitting down with us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. That was Joseph Morgan with Citizens for a Safe and Prosperous Tucson, a group opposing Prop 205. This week, we're talking about Proposition 205 on the city of Tucson ballot. If voters approve it, Tucson would become a sanctuary city and therefore could lose state funding. Shafali Mulcherik Desai is a professor at the University of Arizona James E. Rogers College of Law. We asked her to talk about the law that allows the legislature to take away funding from a municipality that passes a law that conflicts with an existing state law. It is true that if you look at the preemption statute, uh, it, it doesn't address the situation in which the let's assume there's a conflict. And again, I, I want to stress that that is far from clear in this situation. But let's assume for a moment that some conflict has been found. Then is this a kind of... Um, is this something that's addressed by that preemption statute? And if you look at the plain language of the preemption statute, there's nothing in there that says that if um, a, a voters, you know, using their right to initiative, both under the city law, so the city creates a, a, a right for voter initiative, but so does the Arizona Constitution, there's nothing in the preemption statute that says that when that happens, the state can go after state shared revenue dollars from the legislative entity where that initiative has been passed. You know, it's an undecided issue, but if you look at the plain language of the statute, there's nothing in there that says the state can enforce in that situation. You've done a lot of writing on sanctuary laws being challenged around the country. How do they hold up when they get challenged in court? As you know, there have been lots of cases and lots of litigation. So I'll, I'll start kind of where the most recent wave of, of this litigation began. And that happened after, soon after, in January of 2017, uh, President Trump issued the, what I'm going to call for shorthand, the executive order on sanctuary cities. And what you saw immediately following that was a slew of lawsuits challenging that executive order by cities and counties and states across the country. Um, I'll also say that most of those lawsuits have moved through the courts at this point, and every Every single court that has analyzed the issue based on that executive order has ruled in favor of the localities, in favor of the states, the cities, and the counties. And, and here's why. The arguments that the localities made when they saw this order were manyfold. And, and one rested on this term sanctuary city to begin with, which, by the way, is one of my least favorite terms. And, and the reason for that, the reason why sanctuary city is such a difficult term is that it's, it's an undefined term. It's not a legal term. It's not defined anywhere. It's not defined in that executive order. And it's vague. And so what these localities said in those lawsuits was, look, we have no way of knowing whether or not we're running afoul of anything that's in this order because it, it doesn't specify what makes us a sanctuary city. And by the way, we're complying with all federal laws. There isn't a single federal law that we're not complying with. The issue with that executive order was that the um, administration tried to revoke these grant dollars and what the counties and localities were saying on what, first of all, on how can you do that? Congress authorized this long time ago. It had nothing to do with immigration enforcement. Secondly, on what basis are you revoking it? And the only specific law that was set forth in that executive order was a law that is eight, it, the, the statute is 8 U.S.C. 1373. And what this law says, and it's interesting, it's what we call a negative law. So it was a law that Congress passed that said, look, states, localities, you can't restrict. If your employees or officials want to send the federal government immigration status information about a person, you can't restrict them from doing that. Now, for a long time, there was this belief, and the 
case law bore it out, and I won't, I won't bore you with it, um, that when Congress issued a negative directive like that, like you can't restrict something, that that wasn't unlawful commandeering. And I raise this because the Tenth Amendment is the foundation for our federalist system of government, right? We have this system where we say, look, federal government, you're a government of limited enumerated powers, and everything else goes to the states or to the people. That's the language of the Tenth Amendment. And what that means is that the federal government cannot conscript, cannot dragoon, cannot commandeer local officials to do things. For a long time, it was believe that that sort of negative restriction didn't fall under that prohibition. Right in the middle of all this sanctuary city litigation, there's a completely unrelated Supreme Court case that comes out of New Jersey. It's called Murphy versus NCAA. It's a case where a similar kind of law was telling New Jersey it couldn't not do something. And the U.S. Supreme Court ruled last summer uh, in 2018 that that was unlawful commandeering under the Tenth Amendment. What happened immediately after that in the sanctuary city litigation is is the people started to say the the you know lawyers started to argue. Well, then this law is no different, and it is also unlawful commandeering. And ultimately, several courts held that to be true, including a court of appeals, a federal court of appeals. So the only law stated in the executive order is a law that's quite likely unconstitutional. And federal government, you can't force us to basically be conscripted into federal immigration enforcement. That was UA law professor Shafali Malcherik Desai. In 1987, the state of Oregon passed a sanctuary state law. This was, as far as we can tell, the first statewide uh, sanctuary law that was passed. We asked Oregon public broadcasting reporter Dirk Vanderhart about his state's experience with its sanctuary law. What it effectively does is prohibits any public resources from a law enforcement agency from being spent on a number of things. So that is, you know, detecting or apprehending, essentially arresting a person whose only violation of the law is being in the country illegally. If their only violation is is of immigration laws, then... Uh, in Oregon, state law enforcement agencies, local law enforcement agencies are not supposed to have anything to do with them. That is a federal matter. So this law has been on the books for decades. What is it meant for Oregon? Yeah, this actually started in 1977, if you can believe it, when in a very small town in Oregon, a number of local police officers sort of rounded up four men in a restaurant and started interrogating them about their uh, immigration status, essentially. And in at least one or, or maybe more of those people were citizens that had been around for a long time. Uh, I, I'm not totally clear on exactly how that shook out, but it created a, an awareness here that this could be an issue and it eventually led to a civil suit. And in about a decade after that incident, a law was passed, as we've been talking about. For much of the time that this has been on the books, though, Chris, it has been fairly non-controversial, certainly not something that was part of the public consciousness to the degree we were debating and yelling at each other about it, just sort of a matter-of-fact thing that existed on our books. Now, that has changed uh, more recently. Uh, obviously, you know, with President Trump and his immigration policies, people have taken a new interest in how we are enforcing immigration laws in this country, though before even Trump... This has been a, a matter of interest. But, you know, the answer is largely it's been fine. Only recently has Oregon really started debating how we treat these types of folks. Last year, a question was on the Oregon ballot that would have gotten rid of the law, but voters rejected it. That's right. Yeah, uh, this was a this was a ballot measure proposal put forward by a group 
called Oregonians for Immigration Reform. They have actually been classified as a hate group here by the Southern Poverty Law Center, though they would take strenuous issue with that. But essentially, you know, piggybacking on some of the uh, policies of the Trump administration, they wanted Oregonians to take a look at this sanctuary provision in the law and, and effectively do away with it. There was a very fraught campaign, you know, a lot of rhetoric both ways. And eventually, Oregonians sort of overwhelmingly rejected this idea. I think about almost 65 percent of voters said no. So fairly went down in flames. The Trump administration in recent years has tried to hold back certain grant money from the state of Oregon as a result of the sanctuary law, but that has been thrown back. Yeah, and it's not just Oregon. Uh, the Trump administration has you know, been excoriating these sanctuary policies all around the country for years now. But you're right. They did, uh, for Oregon and other places, threaten to pull public safety grants because, in their minds, our laws were not— um, they didn't meet the standards and what the federal government was doing. Uh, and and you're right, a judge uh, here in Portland actually issued an injunction onto that policy saying, you know, hey, federal government, you have to still award these grants. You can't sort of impinge on um, local laws like you're trying to do. That was for a specific grant. Uh, the judge didn't bar all federal restrictions, and it doesn't necessarily apply nationwide. Right. Yeah, this was a Ninth Circuit ruling. And, you know, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, I believe, has ruled that the Trump administration can withhold certain community policing grants on the basis of sanctuary laws and things it doesn't agree with. So it is not a blanket policy. As you know, the law and rulings can be very, very nuanced. And there's a lot of moving parts uh, when it comes to the federal interaction with state law enforcement. Some law enforcement leaders and officials here have said that the sanctuary law could prohibit them from working in any way with the federal government. It sounds like Oregon's experience is there's a lot left up to interpretation with that type of question. I think that's right. If you read the letter of the law, you're not to be enforcing immigration laws, as we've said, if someone's only violation is that. Now, how does that, if I pull someone over for a, a violation or maybe even a crime, and I, it becomes aware to me that that person is in the country illegally, I still think there's some gray area there. I'm not potentially enforcing just the immigration law, but could be enforcing it as an additive proposition. I'm not sure that even all these decades later, Oregon has that much clarity on exactly the outer limits in how this law works. And it's still something that we are working toward, largely through the court cases that arise. That was Dirk Vanderhart, a reporter with Oregon Public Broadcasting. And that's the buzz for this week. Find all of our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Ariana Brocious is the show's producer and editor. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Andrea Kelly is the news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.